Many people try to ignore suffering or pretend that they won't ever have to face it. But as sinners living in a world ravaged by sin, it's inevitable that sooner or later, we will all face suffering. The question is, where will we turn when it comes? Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find today's sermon plus thousands of more free resources over at our website, Radical.net. Well, in today's new sermon based on the book of Job, David Platt urges us to respond to suffering by meditating on God's sovereignty. When we realize who is in control of our suffering, what he is like, and what his purposes are, we can endure faithfully, giving God glory even in our pain. Here's David with a sermon titled, Our Suffering and God's Sovereignty, from the book of Job. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. If you go to the middle of the Bible and take a little bit of a left, you'll find Job right next to Psalms. And as you're turning, I want to greet those of you who are joining with us in Montgomery County and Prince William and Loudoun and Main Avenue and different microsites. It's good to be together across Washington around God's Word, and it's good to be one week into our Bible reading plan together. So if you are just joining us or you missed last week, feel free to pick up one of these Bible reading plans and jump in with us this next week, week two. We just read through the first nine chapters of Genesis, and hopefully some, maybe many, worked on memorizing Genesis 1.27. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to put it on the screen in a minute so that everybody can read it together, but if you've memorized it, you can't look at the screen. So either close your eyes or look down, uh, but this will give an opportunity for everybody to participate in saying this together, and you an opportunity to practice it if you've memorized it, and it will keep me honest in making sure I say it right. So it works all the way around. So if you've memorized it, go ahead and close your eyes or look down. We're going to put this up on the screen and all together at all of our campuses, let's say Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Boom. Well done. Now, I don't really know how many of you actually had your eyes closed or were looking down, but hopefully many of you did. So... We're memorizing basically just a verse a week as we go through the story of Scripture. So this week it'll be Genesis 15, 6. Again, all this. The Bible reading plan, memory verses, resources, all available on our website, mclanebible.org. Just click right in the center on Bible reading plan and it will all appear. I believe that one of my primary responsibilities as your pastor is to teach and preach in such a way that the members of this church are prepared to suffer. Because suffering is a reality for all of us. There are people all across this church I know who have suffered in ways I can't even begin to imagine. It's pretty overwhelming. Even coming into today, I think about the 10,000 or so people who will gather with NBC today. I know many of them are suffering in a variety variety of ways, many of you. Some suffering in light of things that just happened this last week. Others from things that happened a long time ago. And the reality that any one of us could suffer this next week in a way that would totally shock us right now. I don't say this to be depressing. I say this to be real. And some of you today, gathered here at other places, are not Christians, in part because you believe Christians live in some fantasy land of faith that ignores hard reality in the world. But I want to show you today that the Bible doesn't ignore hard reality in the world. The Bible addresses it from the start of history. And as I want to show you, establishes a rock-solid foundation to stand on when the waves of this world come 
crashing towards you. And I guess that's just it. I'm concerned that many Christians don't have a rock solid foundation they're standing on when the waves of the world come crashing toward them. It's oftentimes in suffering that some of the worst theology comes out of people's mouths, Christians' mouths. We say some of the most untrue things in the midst of trial as we're grasping for comfort, we're longing for explanations, yet we come to some very unbiblical conclusions, which means we find ourselves trying to stand on sinking sand. And what makes this really challenging is that in the middle of suffering is usually not the best time to correct thinking. When someone is weeping over the loss of a loved one and they say something that's totally unbiblical, that's definitely not the best time to pull out a sermon on suffering. Which means we need to be prepared, all of us, as best as we can with biblical foundations before we enter into suffering. Now, I'm not saying that simply knowing the Bible will then make suffering easy. Nothing can totally prepare us for the shock of suffering when it hits. When you're going about your normal day and you get a call that something unexpectedly tragic has just happened to your spouse or child or parent, when you finish your Bible reading in the morning and you're getting dressed and you notice a lump somewhere on your body that wasn't there the day before, and in an instant, just like that, your world turns upside down. And what I wanna do today is to help you be as ready as possible when you get that phone call or feel that lump or find yourself in that situation that you never could have imagined. I wanna speak to you today from God's word in a way that I pray will strengthen some of you who are walking through suffering right now, some of you who have been for a long time, and in a way that will prepare you for suffering that may be coming this week or this month or this year or maybe many years from now. And I hope in a way that those of you who are not Christians right now might hear the hope God desires you to have in a world of suffering. I think about Frederick Douglass, whose narrative of his life as a slave has at a prominent place in American history. He experienced, witnessed such horrifying things and he remembers how at eight years old, he woke up one night sleeping under the table in a house and he overheard somebody reading out loud the first chapter of Job and wondering how somebody could experience all that and still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. So as he taught himself to read, he started exploring the Bible and he ended up becoming a Christian and finding himself one day crying out in words that echoed Job to quote, why was I born a man of whom to make a brute? The glad ship is gone. She hides in the dim distance. I am left in the hottest hell of unending slavery. Oh God, save me. Oh God, deliver me. I don't believe there's any book in the Bible that more clearly addresses the hard realities of suffering than the book of Job. And by the way, the reason it's in our Bible reading plan after this first or during this first week after Genesis 9 is because most biblical scholars believe that Job lived after the flood. So there's a reference to the flood in Job 22 and then around or possibly before the time of Abraham who we'll read about this week. So again, we're reading through the Bible chronologically. Job is a part of wisdom literature in the Bible, which is why it doesn't come up until the wisdom books almost halfway through the Bible. But chronologically, it takes place at the very beginning of biblical history. So what I want to do is read Job 1 with you. And then I want us to meditate, reflect on what God is teaching us, saying to us as a church this week amidst the hard realities of suffering in the world. So so let's pray. God, you know what every single person in this room and other campuses right now is walking through. You know all the details. And, and you know what this next week holds, this next month and year holds for every single one of us. So we are asking you right now to speak to us through your word. And we pray, we pray for rock solid foundations to stand on. 
pray that you would bring comfort and strength and hope through your word, your truth today. And you might bring new life to some, maybe many, through your word today. So with that anticipation, we read your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his, on his day, and they would sin and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a road on the camels, raid on the camels, and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead." and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So let's reflect for a moment on our suffering and realize from the very beginning of Job, and this is in your notes that hopefully you received when you came in today, God's word teaches us that suffering is often undeserved often unexpected, often unimaginable, and always painful. I want to take those one by one briefly. Suffering is often undeserved, and I want to be careful here because God's Word also teaches that some suffering comes about as a direct result of our sin. So when a spouse is unfaithful, that leads to all sorts of suffering in a marriage and in children in a family. When a person is hurtful, that leads to suffering. There are countless examples I could share of how sin leads to suffering. But here in the book of Job, the Bible actually goes out of the way to show that Job's suffering was not a direct result of his 
or his family's sin. The author actually goes to great pains to show us not Job's impurity, but purity. Four terms describe him. Blameless, upright, fearing God, and shunning evil. Suffering is often undeserved. And suffering is often unexpected. Verse 13, now there was a day. The language is so simple. A day, just like any other day, when all of a sudden everything changed. We don't usually wake up in the morning expecting suffering to come crashing down on our lives. It's often unexpected and often unimaginable. First, Job's possessions. Then, the people Job worked with. One after another after another while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking. And then, the climax of it all in an instant, all 10 of his children are gone. We didn't even get into chapter two where a similar scene in heaven plays out that leads to Job being afflicted with pain across his body that the rest of the book describes as inflamed ulcerous sores, itching, degenerative changes in facial skin, loss of appetite, depression, loss of strength, worms in the boils, running sores, difficulty in breathing, darkness under the eyes, foul breath, loss of weight, continual pain, restlessness, blackened skin, peeling skin, and fever. By verse 8 of chapter 2, the man who used to sit in the respected seat in the city as judge finds himself sitting in the dump with beggars amidst trash and waste as he scrapes his itching, running sores with a piece of broken pottery. In his deepest nightmares, Job could never have imagined this scene, which is often how suffering works, right? It has a surreal feel to it. Like, is this happening? Like, somebody pinch me and wake me up from this nightmare. Because suffering is always painful. We can try to compare degrees of suffering, but the reality is suffering always hurts. And we see this in Job 1.20. When all these things happen, the Bible says Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. That's an expression in the Bible of violent grief. And this is part of the point we need to see. We need to see that the Bible doesn't in any way gloss over the pain of suffering. We're about to talk about the sovereignty of God, which Job knew. But God's sovereignty doesn't make suffering easy. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that loss isn't heavy and grief isn't hard. It is. And that's part of the point. God, in his word, doesn't call us to ignore the pain of suffering, to put on a spiritual face and pretend it's not there. God is not honored in attempts to hide the pain inside us. God is honored in honest expressions of grief, which means expressing real grief while also being careful not to sin. So how do we do that? How do you suffer without sinning, Job 1.22? How do you suffer in a way that worships God and helps you stand instead of sinking in sand? And this is the question that the book of Job answers. Not in an easy, trite way, but I want to show this to you. So now turn with me to the last chapter of the book. What's in our Bible reading tomorrow, Job chapter 42. And part of the challenge of reading the Bible like we are is we can, we can just jump from the first chapter to the last chapter and amidst all the pain of chapter and chapter chapter in the middle, forget the process that goes from Job 1 and 2 to Job 42. So just to summarize what we're jumping over, all the way through Job 37, Job, Job agonizes with three supposed friends who, for the most part, feed him with lies. The same kind of lies, by the way, that are being sold all over the world today under the guise of a so-called prosperity gospel that says, if you have enough faith, good things will happen to you. So if bad things happen to you, it's because of something wrong with you. But then in chapter 38, God speaks. And God asks Job 64 questions, one after another after another. They give Job a glimpse of God that he had never seen before. And this is Job's response, his conclusion, Job 42, verses 1 through 6. And then Job answered the Lord, and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this is where I want you to reflect on, meditate on God's sovereignty amidst suffering. So what does that mean, sovereignty? Well, here's a summary that comes straight from Job. First, Job realizes in his suffering that God's power is great. God's power is great. Verse two, Job says, I know that you can do all things. God can do all things. 31 different times in the book of Job, God is referred to as the Almighty. And part of what Job realizes by the end of the book is just how almighty God is. I wish we had time to look in depth into God's words to Job where he shows Job that he is exactly what we saw in Genesis last week, the supreme creator and sustainer of all life that God reigns with power over every single molecule and mystery in creation, how the mystery of Job's suffering is connected to millions of other mysteries in the universe that ultimately God alone understands, which leads Job to realize that he is in no place to instruct the holy God of the universe on how he should run the world, worse yet condemn God for the way he runs the world. And Job finds confidence in this, in the sovereign power of God. Why? So follow this in your notes. The sovereign power of God shows us that God is in control. He is in control, which is what Job was confessing way back in chapter one when he fell on his face and he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Job knew at that moment, even the depth of his sorrow, that ultimately God was still in control, on the throne, and this was a good thing. Now, that also brings a host of agonizing why questions over the many chapters that follow, but in the end, Job is reminded of what he said in the beginning. God has ultimate power over all things, and this is a really good thing, because if God isn't in control, well, then who is? Satan? Evil? Sin? Are they in control? No, the whole story of Job is written clearly to show us this next point in your notes. The sovereign power of God reminds us that Satan is subordinate to God. Satan is active in wreaking havoc, evil in the world, but don't miss the point here from the start of the book. Satan is ultimately on a leash and God holds the reins. God is almighty. Satan, sin, and evil are not. God is omnipotent. Satan, sin, and evil are not. God is sovereign. Satan, sin, and evil are not sovereign. So this is not some picture of dualism like Star Wars, some battle between equal yet opposing forces of good and evil. This is not dualism. This is domination. The sovereign power of God shows that God is in control, reminds us that Satan is subordinate, and follow this. What that means is the sovereign power of God assures us that suffering will conclude. And this is why Job takes such comfort in the realization that God has all power and why you can find comfort in this realization. Because if God doesn't have power over the trials we face, then God doesn't have power to bring us through the trials we face. Follow this. If in your attempts to understand your suffering, you begin to minimize the sovereign power of God in your mind to say, well, maybe God is not able to do this or that, and you begin to doubt his ability, his power, then what foundation do you have for faith in his promises to you? If God doesn't have the power to keep his promises, what good are they? I can promise to protect you, but when someone 10 times my strength comes at you, and me, my promise, though well-meaning, will not stand. But in the words of Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Because there is no one and nothing with more power than God. In the words of Frederick Douglass, one and God make a majority. 
Ladies and gentlemen, God keeps his promises because God has all power. When God says a couple of verses earlier in Romans 8, verse 28, that in all things God is working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, you can bank your life on that promise, no matter what happens, because God has all power. And when you read in Revelation that one day suffering is going to end and sorrow is going to cease and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes, you can know it's true because God has all power to bring that promise to pass. The power of God is great. So I urge you in the middle of suffering amidst all the questions that flood our minds, some of which will never be answered this side of heaven, I urge you stand firm on the foundation of God's great power over all things, even especially the worst things. God's power is great. Second truth, for God to be sovereign means that God's purpose is guaranteed. God's purpose is guaranteed. Job 42, verse two. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God has a purpose and it cannot be stopped. Which is exactly what I just quoted from Romans eight twenty eight. In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now, this is where I want to bring in Elihu. So he's a guy who comes on the scene from Job 32 to 37. Turn with me to Job 37 real quick. Elihu seems at times like a pretty arrogant guy, but he also seems at times to be pretty sharp. He shows how Job's three friends were wrong in their assessment of Job's situation. He also shows <coughs> excuse me, how Job had been wrong in his own assessment. Elihu's speeches ultimately set up God's address to Job in chapter 38. And interestingly, when God rebukes Job's companions, he rebukes the other three friends, not Elihu. And much of Elihu's point revolves around what God is doing, accomplishing in the midst of suffering. For example, here in chapter 37, at the beginning, Elihu starts talking about how God brings rain. Let's know what he says in verse 11. So jump down to verse 11. Elihu says, talking about God, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Did you follow that? Verse 13, so God brings the rain, but sometimes for different purposes. Sometimes he brings storms to punish men sometimes to nourish land, other times to show his love in this way or that way. The point is, God has a purpose, but sometimes his purposes are different. If you look down to verse 23, Elihu makes clear that though God's purposes may sometimes be different, they are all righteous and good. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, what we just talked about. Then he says, justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. So based on Elihu's words, we won't have time to turn to all these places for the sake of time. I'll include some on the screen, but what I've put in your notes are at least five different good purposes God sometimes has amidst suffering. And my hope in putting these verses before you is to help you see one or some of the ways God uses suffering in our lives. So follow with me. One, God uses suffering to refine our faith. <coughs> to refine our faith. Listen to Elihu's words in Job 33, 29 through 30. They'll be up on the screen. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Do you hear the purpose there? God uses suffering to save people, to restore people, to do a work in our hearts that brings us from darkness to life. So you may notice I'm a bit under the weather. I've been in bed literally all this week with the flu up until today. So be glad there's a bit of distance between you and me right now. <laughs> Whatever, I got it from one of you last week. I was fine until <laughs> Monday morning. So anyway, especially be glad for multi-campus right now. This is great. You have no problem. 
So this is the sickest I can, <coughs> excuse me, that sounds so bad when it comes over the, the microphone. Sickest I, I can remember being in the last 20 years. Uh, and the irony was not lost on me that I was preparing a sermon on Job. <laughs> but in the middle of the week, uh, just lying there, I was watching a documentary on Martin Luther at one point, and I was reminded of a quote from him amidst all the persecution and suffering that he was facing in the Reformation. Listen to this quote from Luther. He said, as soon as God's word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you and will make a real doctor of you and will teach you by his temptations to seek and to love God's word. For I myself, Luther said, oh, my papists. So these are the people who were persecuting him. Many thanks. I owe them many thanks for so breaking, pressing, and frightening me through the devil's raging that they have turned me into a fairly good theologian. <laughs> driving me to a goal I never should have reached otherwise. <laughs> like Luther said, he was a better theologian because of Satan and those who persecuted him. God was using suffering to drive Luther more to God's word, which in the end was a good thing. It's something we see all over God's word. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5, 3 and 4, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. I could go to so many other places in the Bible that say the same thing. God uses suffering to refine our faith. Second, God uses suffering to reveal his glory. Listen to Elihu's words right before what we just read in chapter 33, verses 19 and following. He says, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and his continual strife, with, with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, declare to man what is right for him, and he's merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down in the pit. I have found a ransom. Lest his flesh become fresh with youth, let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Listen to verse 26. Then, so after, in light of all this agony and pain, then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. Did you see this? Man goes here from sickness and pain with no fulfillment in anything this world offers, but he's brought to rejoice in God in a way that nothing in this world can compare with, with shouts of joy. Like God uses suffering to show the futility of this world and the fulfillment that are found in relationship with him alone. Not to mention the way he reveals his glory, not just to us, but to others. When I watch our sister Lisette in the church walking through cancer right now, seeing with a confident smile on her face, testifying to God's strength in her weakness. I see God's glory on display over and above everything this world offers. Which leads to a third purpose. God uses suffering to teach us to rely on him, to teach us to rely on him. Listen to Elihu's words in Job 34, verses 14 and 15, talking about God. Elihu says, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Elihu's point is clear. Our very breath comes from God. We rely on God for everything in our lives and suffering leads us to look to and rely on him. Johnny Erickson Tata, you may have heard her story, spent most of her life as a quadriplegic, written thing she is or read things she has written. One of my favorite quotes from her, she said, I hope in some way I can take my wheelchair to heaven. With my new glorified body, I will stand up on resurrected legs and I will be next to the Lord Jesus and I will feel those nail prints in his hands and I will say, thank you, Jesus. He will know I mean it because he will recognize me from the inner sanctum of sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. 
he will see that I was one who identified with him in the sharing of his sufferings. So my gratitude will not be hollow. And then I will say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you were right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I do not think I would have ever known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Now, if you like, you can send that thing off to hell. God uses suffering to teach us to rely on him for everything we need. Fourth, God uses suffering to repent of and renounce all sin in our lives. To repent of and renounce all sin in our lives. Now when you hear this, you might wonder, wait a minute, I thought Job's suffering wasn't due to a particular sin in his life. And that's true, it it was not. But this is where Elihu is helpful because unlike Job's friends, he realizes that. At the same time, Elihu points out to Job the presence of sin all around us, the effects of sin all around us, and even the propensity of sin, propensity to sin in our suffering. Elijah says to Job in chapter 36, verse 21, take care, Job, do not turn to iniquity. For this you've chosen rather than affliction. In other words, Elihu warns Job, even amidst his suffering, to run from sin which makes sense when you really think about it. After all, suffering in the world is ultimately a result of sin in the world. We saw this last Sunday in Genesis 3. So even though Job's suffering is not attributable to any particular sin in his life, his suffering is attributable to the presence of sin in the world, right? So when Job experiences suffering, Elihu says he should hate sin all the more because sin is the ultimate cause of suffering. This is really important. There are people all over this room and other campuses who have walked, are walking through suffering right now that is not directly attributable to some sin in your life. Your cancer did not come from a particular sin in your life. So In that sense, it's not that you need to repent of sin that caused cancer. At the same time, don't miss this. If you're suffering, even though it's not directly attributable to a sin in your life, if your suffering doesn't cause you to hate sin more than you did before, then you will likely miss part of God's design in suffering. If you or I go through cancer or disease or this surgery or that illness or circumstance and we still treat sin as casually as we did before, we're missing part of the point. Suffering is so horrible that it should cause us to hate sin all the more and cause us to want nothing to do with it. So when someone you love passes away unexpectedly, when you live with chronic pain, whenever you experience any kind of suffering, let it drive you to an even more intense hatred for sin in this world, a more deep longing to be totally free from sin and all of its effects, to repent of and renounce, renounce sin with great force. If we walk through suffering and we still love sin, we are missing part of the purpose of God. Finally, God uses suffering to lead us to our reward in him. Our reward in him, isn't this Job's conclusion? Back in chapter 42, verses five and six, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The whole book culminates in the point where Job sees God in all of his glory and finds his reward in him. Suffering teaches us not to put all of our hope in our health because it will fail us. Not to put all of our hope in our riches, for they will fail us. Do not put your hope in your job, in your house, your possessions. Don't even put your hope in people ultimately, because not one of them is guaranteed to be here tomorrow. Put your hope in God, and he will never, ever fail you. 
So I put these purposes of God and suffering before you. While we don't always know or understand all God is doing when we walk through certain things, hopefully these are some questions you can at least ask. What areas of your faith is God might God be refining through your suffering? How can you rely on God more as a result of your suffering? What is God revealing about himself to you or to others through your suffering? What sin do you need to repent of and renounce as you grow in your hatred for sin amidst suffering? And how can your suffering drive you to find deeper reward in God? God always has a purpose and his purpose is guaranteed. That's what it means for him to be sovereign. Third, and we're gonna go through these last two pretty quickly because well, they definitely deserve more time, but I really want us to leave time to pray for each other. For God to be sovereign means that God's knowledge is perfect. His knowledge is perfect. Back to chapter 42, Job says in verse three, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In other words, Job says, God, you know all things. Job realizes at the end of this book that in the confusion of our circumstances, God is all wise. God is all wise. I mentioned that Job is in a part of the Old Testament known as the wisdom books. And I want you to see tucked away right near the center of this book, this focus on wisdom. Listen to Job 28. As he wrestles with why this has happened, is happening to him, Job realizes behind it all, God is wise. Job 28, verse 20. From where then, so this is right in the center of the book, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the, thun- of the thunder, and when he saw it and declared it, he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, it's understanding. Job realizes amidst the confusion of his circumstances that there are things he doesn't see and can't understand that God sees and alone understands. And it honors God, follow this, it honors God when we trust his wisdom even as we ask God why. The book of Job is teaching us that pain on earth can only be ultimately understood from the perspective of heaven. Just think about the way this story is told. At no point is Job let in on this conversation that's taken place in heaven. As a result, his only perspective is from the middle of the darkness that surrounds him. You and I, though, have a different perspective, one that helps us understand this whole picture of what's happening. We know that Job is blameless before God. We know at the end of the story that Job will eventually be restored, but Job doesn't know any of this. And this is part of the point. Whenever we walk through suffering, we always have, like Job, a limited perspective, always. Now, I'm not saying that anytime we suffer, God has had a conversation with Satan about our lives like he did here about Job, but the reality is no matter what happens in our suffering, our perspective will always be an earthly one. We will always see pain on that level. But the sovereignty of God reminds us that there is a whole nother perspective. It's the perspective of the God who is all wise and all loving toward his people with all power in all the universe. Why is this happening to me, we might ask, and the answer may not be found on this earth. Just imagine the picture here, the perspective of Job's suffering from heaven. So there stands Satan, surrounded by 10,000 angels, accusing Job, Satan accusing Job of false worship, saying God has to pay people to worship him. And God responds, you may do all these things to Job under my sovereignty. And he does. He strikes down Job's oxen and donkeys, his sheep, camels, servants, and then his children. And a hush comes over heaven as God and Satan and 10,000 angels wait in silence to hear Job's response. Job falls on his face. He worships and says, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And unbeknownst to Job, all of a sudden, 20,000 arms are raised and 10,000 mighty voices shout out, worthy is the God of Job. And Satan goes running out of God's presence. This is the perspective of heaven. So the question for all of us is will we praise God when we're suffering amidst the mysteries of this earth? Will we trust God with the sovereign perspective of heaven? I can't preach Job without thinking about my dad and that moment when I got a call from my younger brother saying, pray for dad, pray for dad. I don't know what's wrong, pray for dad. And I began to plead for my dad, my best friend in the world. And a few minutes later, well, close to an hour later, after just praying and crying and weeping, I get a call from my older brother saying, dad's gone. And just hanging up the phone and just praying, God, I pray for faith, trust you. I am not saying this is easy. But I am trusting that God is all wise. He has all power. He has all knowledge. And he's not just wise and powerful. He is good. Which is the final truth here. God's mercy is personal. God's mercy is personal. So just think about how this book is structured. From the beginning and for so many chapters, we see a picture in Job of what we all want in our suffering, right? An explanation from God. The question why is asked at least 25 different times in the book. It's the same question we ask when we experience suffering in our lives, when we see suffering in others' lives. Why, God? I don't understand why. So the majority of the book of Job, we're asking that question. Finally, we get to the end and God speaks. We are ready for the answer. And what do we get? We get 64 questions from God. 64 questions that reveal who God is. What we want in our suffering, follow this, like Job is an explanation from God, what we receive in our suffering is a revelation of God. Which I believe the book of Job is teaching us is what we need most. Our greatest need in suffering is not an explanation from God but the revelation of God's power, wisdom, goodness, strength, peace, and presence with us. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you might think, <coughs> excuse me, what do you mean? My greatest need is the revelation of God's presence. I'd rather have an explanation. But would we really? Think about it this way. Think of times when I've broken a bone, going to the ER, writhing in pain. In those moments, do I need a doctor to come and show me the x-ray and give me the explanation for how the wrist broke and for why I'm hurting? No, I want him to give me something to help me with the pain. I think about it another way. If I've learned anything in my marriage, I've learned that when my wife is going through difficult times, what she needs most is not explanations from me. She needs my presence, my love, support alongside her. And this, ladies and gentlemen, this is the ultimate point of the book of Job. We do not have a God who is distant from us in the heavens, doling out philosophical explanations for why suffering exists. He's not showing us an x-ray machine, giving us medical explanations for why we're writhing in pain. Instead, we have a God who at every moment in our suffering is with us. This is the astounding truth of the Bible. God is not distant from this world and all of its pain. God has come to be with us. God himself has entered into this world of sin and suffering in the person of Jesus, like us in every way, yet without sin. Are you broken? He was broken. Are you rejected? He was rejected. Are you hurting? He hurt. Do you cry out because you feel like you just can't take it anymore? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Do you wonder why hear his words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the center of the Bible is a God who came to be with us in our suffering, who came to pay the price for sin that is the root of all suffering. And after he died on the cross for your sin and my sin, he rose from the grave in victory over it. And he told his disciples what we say to each other every single week, I will be with you always. No matter what you're going through today, what you will go through tomorrow, know this, you are not alone. 
you are not alone. You are never alone. At every moment in our suffering, God is with us and at every moment in our suffering, God is for us. So you gotta hear just one last, one last passage in Job. Job chapter 19. So from the start of chapter three, Job's in the depth of despair. He's depressed. He wants his life to end. And it builds for chapter after chapter after chapter until chapter 19, where Job feels totally deserted. He has no one. His wife has told him to curse God. He feels hopeless. Listen to his words of despair. Job 19, verse 13. He has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead within my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me when they rise against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, are you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Do you hear it? Why? 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 Everybody else gone. In the midst of his despair, though, at this point, we see one of the most triumphant declarations in the entire book. Listen to what it says. In the depth of his despair, Job writes, verse 23, although my words were written, they were inscribed in a book, although with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. In the depth of his despair, Job cries out, I do have hope. I don't have all the answers. So many questions swirling in Job's mind, just like they are in ours. Yet one thing he knows, I have a redeemer a rescuer who lives. And in the end, don't miss it. This is not the end. This is not the end, Job cries. This is not the end. In the end, he will stand and he will deliver me after my skin has been destroyed. So there's something after your skin has been destroyed. There's something after your cancer and your pain and your loss and your grief. There's something after. After that, in my flesh, I will see God. I will see with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart longs within me. To every man, woman, student, child in a world of sin and suffering, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how dark it gets, always know this. You, you, you have a redeemer who lives. His name is Jesus. He lives. And in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And all who trust in him will see his face. So trust in him. So non-Christian friend or family member here today, trust in him. I urge every person within the sound of my voice, trust in him. Do not bank your hope on this world. Bank your hope on the God over this world who has made a way for you to have the assurance of eternal life with him forever. Eternal life that cancer and disease and sickness and suffering and death can never take away from you. And Christian brothers, trust in him. And don't stop trusting in him. His power is great. His purpose is guaranteed. His knowledge is perfect. And his mercy is personal. Trust in him today and tomorrow, knowing that one day you will see his face. And you will be free from suffering. And we know this. Why? Because God is sovereign. Period. So, Here's what I want to do. Instead of just pausing and reflecting around this room, what I want to do is pause and pray. And I want us to pray specifically for those who are walking through suffering right now. And so in just a second, I'm going to ask here at another campuses, people just to stand in a moment, if you would be willing to say, I'm walking through some suffering in my life or my family, or whatever it might be. You don't, you don't have to tell anybody what it is. And don't think, I don't know if it's as bad as others. Like, that's not the point. If you're just saying, I'm walking through a valley right now, and I would love for people just to pray for me. We want to have time where we just intercede for you, or we come around and we are family 
to you. We don't want you to feel desert. We want you to have brothers and sisters who are around you. Even if you're not a follower of Christ and you're walking through some challenges, no, we as a church would love to pray for you specifically. And I just want to have, I don't think we should walk through this text and not have some time where we intercede for those who are in, in the valley right now. So if you would say in this room, at all of our campuses right now, if you would say, yeah, I or we are just walking through a hard time right now, then can I just invite you to stand where you are all across this room and in all of our campuses. Again, don't think, well, it's not as bad as Job. Thankfully, it's not as bad as Job for, I don't think any of us. But if you would just say, yeah, I'm walking through it. I invite you just to stand where you are right now, just walking through a valley, just need an extra measure of grace, need an extra measure of strength. God, challenges at work, challenges at life, family, whatever it might be. Anybody else? Make sure to give time. Hope you know this is a safe place to do this. This is, this is real, like we walk through challenges, difficulties, trials. None of us immune to them. All right. There's people standing all across this room. I trust people standing at different campuses. So now I want to invite the rest of us to stand. And if there's anybody around you, just go toward that person and just put a hand on their shoulders. If you don't know who they are, maybe you're going to ask them their name, but Again, they don't have to share while they're walking through, but what I want to do is I want to lead us in prayer for them. And we're just going to pray all at the same time out loud. We've done this at different points. I'm going to be praying, you'll be praying, and then I'll kind of close us all together in the end. But let's just begin right now all at the same time out loud to pray for these God knows what they're walking through. You don't necessarily have to know all they're walking through, but just to intercede for all the things. Just think, how would I pray for Job in different ways? So pray for these who've, who've stood. Sound good? All right, let's start to pray right now. All across this room and other campuses, out loud, let's pray. Oh God. Oh God, we lift these who've stood before you. You know every one of their needs. You know everything that's going on in their lives, their family. And we just pray, oh God, trusting that you are all these things we've just seen in your word. You are all powerful. So we pray that you'd show your power, show your strength on their behalf, we pray. Show your power. They need your grace. Uphold them with your righteous right hand, we pray. You're a refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. So God, help them, we pray, in every way they need. Your purpose guaranteed. God, we pray that you would glorify yourself in the grace you provide. You would draw them closer to you. God, give them faith on days when faith is hard to come by, we pray. Draw them into deeper intimacy with you, deeper reward in you in the middle of this, we pray. Lead others to Jesus as they trust in Jesus. God, we pray that you'd glorify yourself, (coughs) accomplish your purposes, work all these things together for the good of those who love you. We pray, oh God, your wisdom, knowledge is perfect. We pray you would help them to trust in your, your wisdom, oh God. And I pray, we pray that you would give them wisdom for, for every decision they make and Every moment they face, you would provide them wisdom just like you promise in James chapter one. God, your mercy is personal. May they know your presence with them today. May they know even coming here today that you, you are speaking to them, that you are with them, that you, you are not unfamiliar with their suffering. And not only are you with them, but you are for them. God, may they know your grace, your mercy, your power on their behalf, we pray. Oh God, we praise you for sending your son to die on the cross, to rise from the grave in victory over sin and death. All our hope is in you, our redeemer, Lord Jesus. And we look forward to when you will come, 
we will see your face and you will wipe away every tear from ours. God, we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly and help us, help us in this world of suffering from this day until that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to watch today's full sermon, pick up a copy of any one of David's books or download the free discussion questions that go along with each sermon or even check out our other podcast, Pray the Word. You can do all that and more at our website, Radical.net. We especially want to point your attention to a downloadable free resource called 12 Traits, Embracing God's Design for the Church, where David Platt highlights 12 traits from God's God's Word that should characterize every church. You can download this free just by visiting Radical.net forward slash 12 traits. That's the number 12 traits. Well, I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us there at Radical.net.